Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 16, Project Gemini Flight 5, Gemini 6A. The one that comes after 7. Last time, we talked about the flight of Gordo Cooper and Pete Conrad on their record-breaking flight aboard Gemini 5. The flight proved that there would be no significant medical issues with a mission long enough to fly to the moon and back. Gemini 4 had performed extravehicular activity, Gemini 5 had performed long-duration flight, and now it was Gemini 6's turn to prove that orbital rendezvous and docking were possible. Orbital rendezvous is just a fancy way of saying meeting up with another vehicle while in space, and it had become a critical part of the Apollo program. In the early days of planning the moon landing, it was assumed that a stupendously large rocket known as the Nova would be developed in order to send a moon landing vehicle directly to the surface. This line of reasoning makes sense. The so-called direct ascent method was super simple. You could basically sum it up as, let's just go to the moon. The problem was that there wasn't much time left to develop the Nova, and even if they had time, it would be expensive even for the staggering sums lavished on NASA in the 1960s. Several alternatives were explored, and after much back and forth, the winning strategy was Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. Here's how it worked. A single rocket would send the crew and two vehicles, a command module and a lander, out to the moon, where they would enter lunar orbit. From there, one crew member would remain in lunar orbit in the command module, while two crew members would take the landing vehicle down to the surface, perform surface activities, and then return to lunar orbit. And here's where orbital rendezvous and docking comes in. The landing vehicle would be designed for lunar flight only. It was not possible to use it to safely return to Earth. In order to get the crew home, they would have to meet up and attach with the command module while in orbit around the moon. If orbital rendezvous could not be perfected and done reliably, there was no way we could get to the moon before the end of the decade. So it fell on Gemini 6 to try to figure it out. The target for Gemini 6 was a modified version of the Agena spacecraft. The Agena was an advanced upper stage used on top of the Atlas rocket. It was an ideal target for these early rendezvous missions, since it had its own attitude control system, which would keep it steady, and it could be controlled remotely and use its sizable engine to make up for any discrepancies with the Gemini orbit. It was also a relatively known quantity, despite its modifications, since it had been used to launch numerous payloads for the U.S. military. In order to be usable by Project Gemini, a docking collar was added to one end of the vehicle, the attitude control and remote command systems were improved for better reliability, and the main propulsion system was updated to allow for several restarts, as opposed to the original, which could only start once or twice. The modified Agena became known as the Gemini Agena Target Vehicle, or GATV. Also, just as a fun fact, the Agena was launched from Space Launch Complex 14 at Cape Canaveral, which is now the landing site of the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Alright, so we've got ourselves a target spacecraft. What's the plan to get to it? Allow me to walk you through, step by step, how to perform an orbital rendezvous. First, you launch the target vehicle into a nice, simple, circular orbit. For the sake of this example, let's say it will be orbiting 300 kilometers above the Earth. Next, you launch yourself into orbit, but be careful. You can't just launch any time you feel like anymore. Instead, you have to wait until the launch site is at least close to the plane of the target's orbit. Imagine the target orbit as a circle around the Earth, 
with the Earth rotating beneath it as the circle stays in place. Get your chaser vehicle all ready to go on the launch pad, and then wait for the Earth to rotate until the launch site is almost directly underneath the circle traced out by the target vehicle. By launching at that time, you can ensure that both of your orbits are coplanar, they're in the same plane. This saves fuel, since you don't have to change planes later, and also reduces the problem from a 3D problem to a 2D problem. Unlike the target vehicle, you're not going to be launching into a 300km high circular orbit. Instead, launch into a lower orbit. Let's say it's an elliptical orbit, with a high point of 280km and a low point of 160km. For the sake of this example, the numbers aren't too important, so don't work too hard to remember them. By being in a lower orbit, you'll start to catch up with the higher, and thus slower, target vehicle. A good way to think of this is to imagine runners on a track. The runner on the outermost lane has farther to run, so a runner on the inside lane, moving at the same speed, will catch up and pass them. This isn't exactly how it works in orbit, but it's a good image to get a grasp on what's going on here. At this point, if you were to make a graph showing your height compared to the target's height, along with how far behind the target you are in the orbit, you would see a series of up and down wiggles moving closer and closer to the target. The up and down motion is because while the target stays at 300 kilometers, you'll be moving up to 280 and then down to 160 every time you orbit around the Earth. The wiggles move closer and closer to the target since you're moving around the Earth faster, catching up. After a few orbits, you'll be getting pretty close to the target vehicle, the runners are on a line with the center of the track, so it's time to move in for the rendezvous. The next time you hit the high point of your orbit, thrust your engines forward, raising the low point of your orbit until it matches the high point. You'll now be in a circular orbit 280 kilometers above the Earth, so 20 kilometers below the orbit of your target. So instead of drifting back down, now you'll maintain a constant height below the target orbit. At this point, you'll be able to see your target, so you'll be able to note what angle it's at above your horizon. Point your ship to a preset angle, wait for the target to appear at a different preset angle, and thrust forward again. This burn raises your orbit such that now it passes through the orbit of your target in about 20 minutes. As you get closer and closer, you'll note the relative angle of the target, consult a handy-dandy table printed up by all the experts on the ground, and make small adjustments to your trajectory to stay on course. As you're doing this, your lower and faster orbit will scoot underneath the target, and you'll find yourself at the same height as the target, but in front of it. All that's left to do now is match the speed of the target, making your orbit the same as its orbit, and slowly close in for the final rendezvous and docking. If that all sounded complicated, it's because it really was. But what's amazing about this is that by carefully designing the approach pattern, the mission planners created the trajectory that was ideal for human pilots. There was good target visibility, the approach was spread out over a long enough time that there was no real need to rush, and the entire process was tolerant of minor errors introduced by the fallible human pilots. But don't tell them I said that. This mission was an important one, but it wouldn't be a long one. The Gemini 6 spacecraft used batteries instead of fuel cells. It was actually the last Gemini spacecraft to do so, and thus it was limited to only a few days on orbit. In this case, the mission was planned to be two days, but it could be as short as one since it was an option to return to Earth shortly after docking. Along with the mission itself, training for this mission was perhaps shorter than some of the astronauts would like. 
With so many astronauts preparing for so many missions that launched so often, training started to become a serious issue, both logistically and mentally. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, let's take a look at Pete Conrad's training schedule. Shortly after returning from an international publicity tour following the successful Gemini 5 mission we talked about last time, Conrad was assigned to be the commander of the backup crew for Gemini 8. The backup crew had to be ready to swap places with the prime crew at any time, so they had to be just as prepared, even if they ultimately stayed on the ground. Sure enough, after enduring the grueling training for Gemini 8, the backup crew watched from the ground as the prime crew flew the mission. Five days later, Conrad was then assigned to command the prime crew of Gemini 11. So, despite the fact that Pete Conrad would not fly in space for over a year between missions, he was essentially in full-blown mission training for the entire time. I mention this just to highlight how truly dedicated these early astronauts had to be. Being an astronaut was far more than a job, it was their entire life. The strains placed on personal relationships during this period explains why more than a few astronaut marriages did not survive the 60s, and why so many astronauts voluntarily left what is widely seen as a dream job. The command pilot for the perhaps overworked crew of this mission was Mercury 7 astronaut Wally Schirra. Schirra, as you'll recall, flew the textbook six-orbit flight of Sigma 7 back in 1962. A test pilot at heart, Shira was eagerly looking forward to performing the world's first orbital rendezvous and seeing for himself what unforeseen problems might emerge. This was his second of three space flights. Alongside Shira was a new nine rookie, Tom Stafford. Stafford was born on September 17, 1930, in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Sticking with the astronaut archetype, he attended the U.S. Naval Academy in Maryland before becoming a pilot in the U.S. Air Force. There, he served as an interceptor, pilot, flight test maintenance officer, and flight leader before heading on to test pilot school. During his time as a test pilot, he literally wrote the book, or at least a book, on the art of flight testing, co-authoring the Pilot's Handbook for Performance Flight Testing, as well as the Aerodynamics Handbook for Performance Flight Testing. This was his first of four space flights. On October 25, 1965, the time for training was over. As pad workers readied the Agena target vehicle for launch just a few miles away, Shira and Stafford climbed aboard their spacecraft. The plan was for the Agena to launch aboard an Atlas rocket, establish itself in orbit, and then as it passed over the launch site roughly an hour and a half later, the Gemini crew would light their Titan II rocket and chase it down. This was the first time NASA was attempting this type of dual launch, and it was pretty tricky. As has become apparent over the course of this podcast, rockets are pretty temperamental beasts and tend to scoff at things like schedules and timelines. In order for this to work, both rockets would have to take off at the proper time. Once the Agena was in space, the clock was ticking, and it would only last about five days. If the Titan II couldn't get off the pad on the first attempt, there would only be a limited number of chances to try again. But it looked like all of the hard work and training was paying off, as both vehicles proceeded smoothly down their launch checklist. At 10am, the Atlas fired up and rocketed off into the distance. A couple minutes later, the Atlas engine cut out, the Agena separated, lit its engine and apparently exploded? 
Shortly after the engine light command was issued, all telemetry to the vehicle was lost, and radar tracking noted several objects where there should be just one. While ground crews attempted to regain control of the all-important Agena target vehicle, it soon became apparent that there was nothing that could be done. The crew exited their spacecraft and wondered what would happen next. What happened next was crazy. It was crazy, exciting, daring, and innovative. In short, it was emblematic of all that we love about this period of human spaceflight history. It started with a simple question between McDonnell employees Walter Burke and John Yardley, and overheard by Gemini 7 pilot Jim Lovell. Why couldn't we launch a Gemini target instead of an Agena? Whoa. Okay, hang on. Let's play this out. Gemini 7 was planned to be an ultra-duration mission, lasting nearly two weeks. This crazy idea was to launch Gemini 7, scramble to get the pad ready again, launch Gemini 6 as soon as possible, and have 6 chase down 7 as if it were the Agena. It would mean they would have to figure out how to refurbish the pad, erect a launch vehicle, attach the spacecraft, and test it, all in less than two weeks. It also meant that they would have to figure out how to safely keep track of and communicate with two separate manned vehicles as they orbited the Earth. It was a lot to take in, but it seemed like it might just be possible. The first problem was the launch pad. The ground crews had been performing admirably when it came to turnaround time between missions, but this kind of schedule pressure was on a next level. When a rocket takes off, it beats the heck out of the launch pad, and repairs need to be made. Additionally, it takes considerable time to bring out the next rocket, stack it, check it, attach the spacecraft, all that stuff. The second rocket couldn't be prepared ahead of time, since once it was stacked vertically, the manufacturer insisted that it was not possible to bring it back down without starting from scratch on all the lengthy tests. With only one launch pad available for Gemini launches, this was an issue. My favorite proposed solution to this problem was to stack up the rocket for Gemini 6, test it, then use a helicopter to pick it up and fly it to an unused launch pad, then build the rocket for 7, launch it, fly the 6 rocket back to the launch pad, make sure nothing broke, I can't imagine how that would have happened, and then launch that one. I would have paid money to see a helicopter flying a fully stacked Titan II launch vehicle around Florida. But alas, the manufacturer eventually relented and said that bringing it back down should be fine after all. But what about the tracking network? The fine folks in Houston had a clever solution for this one, as they usually do. Since Gemini 7 would just be passively waiting for 6's arrival, not as much communication was required. So when 6 launched, they would turn their full attention to this much shorter mission and switch 7 over to the older network tech left over from Project Mercury. Rather than real-time data being funneled directly to Mission Control, the individual tracking stations would send teletype updates to Houston as 7 passed overhead. This freed up the shiny new tracking tech to focus on 6. The idea of using Gemini 7 as the target for Gemini 6 popped up later on the same day as the failed Agena launch, and quickly worked its way up the chain of command. Each time it did, the exchange essentially went, That's crazy! It's impossible! Why? Hmm, well, maybe. Let me ask my boss. 
until it had bubbled up all the way to James Webb himself, the administrator of NASA. The ground crews were on board, the mission controllers were on board, the manufacturers were on board, and the astronauts were like already in their spacecraft mashing on the launch button. This is how Gemini 6A, the renamed, redesigned, reinvigorated Gemini 6 was born. Legendary pad leader Gunter Vent perhaps summed it up best when he was told the plan and responded, Oh man, you are crazy. The mission plan for Gemini 7 was slightly tweaked to make sure it would be in a circular orbit when it came time for Gemini 6A to visit. They also got some last-minute hardware additions, including radar gear and some navigation lights, but only minimal changes were required. There was some initial thought about attempting to dock with an inflatable collar, or perhaps doing a double EVA and swapping pilots, but Gemini 7 command pilot Frank Borman was having none of it. At one point he said, Wally could have all the EVA he wanted, but I wasn't going to open the hatch. So let's fast forward a bit. Forty days after Regina disintegrated somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, Gemini 7 was launched for its long-endurance mission. We'll be talking about 7 next episode, so I'll leave the details to next time. Sure enough, the departing Titan II launch vehicle did some damage to the pad, but repairs went surprisingly smoothly. So only eight days after the launch of Gemini 7, the crew of Gemini 6A once again donned their pressure suits and stepped into their waiting spacecraft. The countdown passed with no problems, and at the precise time required to meet up with their orbiting colleagues, the two engines at the base of the rocket roared to life, and then stopped. Something was wrong. The engines had definitely lit, but it then abruptly turned off. Since the mission clock was running, it seemed that it had at least slightly lifted off the pad before coming back down. The Titan II was not designed to do this. Everyone collectively held their breath to see if the lightweight structure could withstand the unforeseen stresses. Controllers in Houston were surprised when Shira did not pull the large D-ring handle to activate his and Stafford's ejection seats. After what must have been a tense few moments, it became apparent that the situation was stable. Despite the clock running, the rocket hadn't actually moved. The crew was safe, the launch vehicle was seemingly intact, but Shira and Stafford had once again been denied their launch. So this was really bad. Rocket engine problems are not easy to diagnose, and are even harder to fix. There were only a few days left to get 6A off the ground before 7 would be forced to return home. While the dejected crew once again left their spacecraft unlaunched, engineers rushed the vehicle to try to determine what had gone wrong. Thankfully for the mission, the cause turned out to not require any intensive repair. A dust cover had been inadvertently left in part of the engine, causing it to misfire on startup. Then the vibration from the engine caused a cable to disconnect early, starting the mission clock and giving the false impression that it had taken off. It's always the little things that'll get you. So, three days later, on December 15th, 1965, for a third time, Wally Shira and Tom Stafford readied their spacecraft for departure. At last, at 8.37am, Gemini 6A rose from the pad, perhaps fueled by the willpower of the crew in addition to the two powerful engines below them. Minutes later, they were deposited into an elliptical orbit around 1,200 miles behind Gemini 7. It was time to get to work. 
I think it really says something about how well prepared everyone was for this mission that this next part of the episode can be so short. The crew of Gemini 7 waited patiently in their circular orbit while the crew of Gemini 6A performed a series of short engine firings to nudge their orbits closer and closer together. A little over five hours after launching, Sharab remarked on a particularly bright star appearing on the horizon, only to realize that it was their target. At 2.33pm, just six hours after lifting off, Sharab made the last few tweaks to his trajectory and drifted up to Borman and Level in Gemini 7, a mere hundred feet away. NASA had accomplished orbital rendezvous. For nearly five hours, the crew of Gemini 6A expertly commanded their craft to zip all around Gemini 7, getting as close as a few feet. Station keeping posed no problems, and it appeared that had the Gemini spacecraft been fitted for docking, it could have been done easily. The 7 crew remarked on the dramatic show put on by 6A's Ohm's thrusters in the vacuum of space, a sight no one had ever seen before. Both crews were also surprised to discover that long cords, remnants of the upper stage, trailed behind both of their vehicles, though it seemed harmless. As celebratory cigars were lit in Houston, the mood must have been considerably more dour in Moscow. The Russians had seemingly attempted rendezvous a few years later, but were only able to get within a few miles and passed each other at high speeds. Additionally, NASA now had four astronauts in space at once, surpassing the quickly arranged three-man flight aboard Voskhod 1 the year before. America's lead in the space race was growing. Having company in space was great, but it was time to head back. Keeping tabs on two spacecraft at once was too taxing on everyone involved, especially since Seven was experiencing an issue with its fuel cell and required Houston's full attention. Shara opted to return to Earth early since the main mission had been accomplished, and he also seemed to be developing a cold, an especially unpleasant experience in space. Shara and Stafford enjoyed one last exchange with their friends on Gemini 7. Shortly before departing, Stafford noted that he thought he could see another vehicle approaching from the north, perhaps in a polar orbit, poised for re-entry. This was followed by Shara playing jingle bells on a small, smuggled harmonica, while Stafford backed him up with a jangling set of bells. It seemed Santa had come a few days early. Departure proceeded uneventfully, and the equipment module jettison, retro rocket fire, and retro module jettison all occurred on schedule. In another happy moment of progress, there were no issues during reentry, and Shara, with input from his guidance computer, performed the first ever successful guided entry. 26 hours after lifting off from Florida, Gemini 6A splashed down only 8 miles from its target. Despite its considerably rocky path to orbit, Gemini 6 was an unqualified success. Everyone from the ground technicians who prepared it for launch in just a few days, to the mission controllers who dealt with the complexity of flying two manned spacecraft at once, to the astronauts themselves, and everyone in between, had come together to make a seemingly crazy mission go smooth as silk. But the drama of Gemini 6A-7 wasn't quite over yet. We'll leave Shara and Stafford safely aboard the USS Wasp, but Frank Borman and Jim Lovell are still on the job up in orbit. In two weeks, we'll rewind the clock a little and take a look at this impressive feat from the other perspective. We'll also examine what happens when you take two guys, lock them in the front seat of a car, and tell them that they can only come out in two weeks. 
one thing is for sure, this ultimate road trip has one hell of a view. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Yeah.